Too Long Didn't Read, the weekly podcast from the Alan Turing Institute, the National Institute for Data Science and AI. Hello and welcome to Too Long Didn't Read, a balanced look at a few of this week's top stories in the AI world. We read so you don't have to. I'm Jonah, a content producer here at the Turing, and here's... Smera, I'm a research assistant at the Turing Institute. <laughs> you didn't quite work with the drum roll I gave you there. Smera, this week I had the pleasure of witnessing you talk eloquently about AI and ethics on stage at your AI fringe event, AI at a Turning Point. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. It was a really good experience. I think we got a lot of great speakers and we discussed a lot of concepts that are very interesting to a lot of people, but aren't getting the attention that they probably deserve at the Safety Summit. So this was a good way to make AI for all, which was the tagline of hashtag AI Fringe. Well, it was very cool. Congrats. And also thank you to the excellent Luca, who filled in for me last week as I soaked up the rains on a beach in Suffolk. He was good, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He actually really, really was. I kind of miss him. I feel like he should be a guest star. Oh, he'll be back. Don't you worry. Right, we better crack on. We've reached the summit of Mount AI safety. Safely. This is, of course, the news that during the week the UK hosted a two-day AI safety summit at Bletchley Park, the site where the Enigma Machines code was cracked by Alan Turing, the one and only, and his code-breaking colleagues during World War Two. Exactly, Jonah. If I could just take a moment to say that the summit being held in Bletchley Park is very important because of what you said, it being the site of Alan, where Alan Turing did his code-breaking work. And he is the namesake of our institution and one of the most celebrated mathematicians and code-breakers. His identity and history is also a reason to remember the marginalized and vulnerable communities who might be impacted by the use of AI. Yeah, of course. That's a good point. So the summit was attended by representatives from 25 countries and many of the big names in big tech. King Charles even dropped in for a pre-recorded message. There's been a lot to digest in the news. China, the US and the UK have all agreed to work together to help build something called International Governance Framework. Joe Biden has simultaneously launched some rather important sounding AI regs in the States. Smira, what are your key headlines from the week? So the UK Safety Summit was held on the 1st and 2nd of November and the Safety Summit was postured as the first global convention which brought together academics, developers and policymakers from the world's leading AI states like the US, China, the EU and of course the United Kingdom. Yep. There were a series of conversations and there are a few outcomes that we can look forward to such as the safety institutes that are going to be set up in the US and the UK uh, as well as a UN-backed inter- governmental panel that's going to look into AI safety. And very importantly, a state of science report into the risks and capabilities of Frontier AI with Yasha Bengio leading it, who's often seen as the godfather of AI. Okay, that all sounds pretty positive stuff then. I'm guessing, though important, these are early steps. Uh, Also, what is Frontier AI exactly? Yeah, so Frontier AI is a pretty contested term. It's like hallucination or even the concept of foundation models. A lot of academics don't agree with it. And there are disputes on whether it should be used to cover this range of AI developments that we're seeing. So the next generation or iteration of technology will, by this definition, be the next Frontier AI. So there is a foundation on which it's going to be built. So the idea is that these are models at the forefront of innovation. And for instance, 
instance, the Ada Lovelace Institute, views it as a term which is largely used by policy folks and regulators. Okay, so can you tell me what the safety element is in the AI Safety Summit? Safety can be seen in terms of technical safety metrics. This could be accuracy, reliability, and different metrics such as that. But safety can also be seen in the more socio-technical sense of fairness, of ensuring that the people who use it, whose data is used to train the model, and other such aspects are also treated safely, and their interactions with this technology is done in a safe, meaningful, and responsible manner. So what would you hope to see come next? Um, Or what do you predict will come next for AI safety? What are the next steps? At the end of the two-day summit, we've learned that France is set to host the safety summit next year. But we need more than just statements signed by select few countries. For instance, this year we saw around 30 countries, but there needs to be more engagement with a lot more of the 100 and. 20-odd countries that exist across the globe. There also needs to be more engagement with non-transatlantic countries. These often include territories that where data is being collected, where labor is often exploited, and where the minerals for the hardware itself originates. Oh, okay. They are also, more fundamentally, where AI systems are used without active and meaningful community engagement. Which brings me to point number two. There needs to be a lot more stakeholder engagement from between now and the next summit. This conversation needs to include more impacted communities. Communities which, at the scale of deployment, can be anyone, including you and me, Jonah. Nothing for us without us, right? We need to center this conversation on those vulnerable groups which face the biggest shocks and damage from unsafe AI deployment or testing. This conversation also needs to include, for example, children as well, who are not included in the conversation, but are often the biggest users of such tools. And finally, we cannot afford a hands-off approach to regulation because the tech is growing at an alarming scale. With reports documenting risks of LLMs being used for cybercrime, warfare, weapons production, and so on, we need more stringent investigation and a a better review process. It shouldn't just be a for-profit and business-centered approach, but one that centers humans and, more importantly, centers the entire planet. Okay, yeah. Uh, what what was that phrase you just said? Not together. Nothing for us without us. I like that. Nothing for us without us. Yes. So that's about uh, that's about it for the um, AI Safety Summit. There's one thing I wanted to touch on, which um, was during Rishi Sunak and Elon Musk's chat that they had on Thursday night. And Elon Musk said that there will come a point where no job is needed. You can have a job if you want to have a job, but the AI will be able to do everything. Have you got anything to say about that, Smira? Is, is, is that really going to happen? I mean, we're already seeing more robotics and machine operations in routine jobs or those that are, you know, often repetitive. But there are differing reports on how employment trends will change with AI because some suggest that many in the legal profession or marketing and consumer data analytics are at risk. The idea is that some of these tasks like data classification or data modeling and research is repetitive and can be automated. There was a report that I saw that suggested teachers, especially those in literature and history, apparently are more at risk. Um, And based on U.S. labor statistics, women are at a higher risk of losing jobs because the fields that they represented are more at risk of automation. But I'm uncertain if automation of jobs will always lead to that spectacular result that some people claim. 
marketing and creative industries that, as I said, are at risk, require insight and imagination, which models just don't have. For teachers in primary schools, I read that very young children need more human contact and natural responses to situations, which honestly a robot or a device cannot provide, at least at this point. We are seeing a lot of firms suggest a human-machine nexus might actually help the workforce and the work output such that it frees up time for us to do other things, particularly reducing the amount of language-based repetitive tasks. There is also now a focus on reskilling people to adapt to a tech-centric environment. In any case, a lot of fields will still require human oversight and more strategic planning, lest we have a future like the one we see in the movie Wally. Yeah, I mean, I do spend quite a lot of my day sitting in a chair pressing buttons like they do on Wally. There. Moving on. So, um the Alan Turing Institute was one of the partners for the AI Summit, so we'll keep you updated with anything further. And also at the institute, we are working with um the responsible use of AI, and that was what your event yesterday was all about, right, Smira? Yes, it was. We were very happy to launch the first four workbooks of the AI Ethics and Governance in Practice series, and these are aimed at skilling and equipping the public sector, that is civil servants, with the tools and the vocabulary they need to ensure responsible use of AI. And this is across the entire project life life cycle, and largely this is a part of the national AI strategy which aimed to extend the original guidance on the safe use of AI. AI systems in the public sector. So definitely in the UK, I think there are a lot of steps being taken to ensure safety is a huge element of how we move forward. As well it should be. Mira, why don't you ever have to do homework with AI? Why? Because it always has the bite answers. <laughs> Oh, Jonah, it's getting it's getting worse and worse. Are you sure that was funny? <laughs> that was not funny, I admit. Um, that was uh, created by ChatGPT, and I asked for a dad joke. Um, it actually summarised dad jokes as uh, incorporating wordplay. That's what's characteristic of dad jokes, which is what I seem to be <laughs> famous for. So there we go. It leads us to the next story anyway, which is about the proliferation of ChatGPT and similar generative AI tools being used to complete homework. This article that I read from the BBC was written by two young people, two BBC young reporters. It's no big surprise that children are using generative AI to answer homework questions. I mean, I definitely would have if I could have. And the article points out that their teachers are possibly using it too. So no judgment here. One thing I did find interesting is that children don't seem to be put off by the lack of correct answers. One child said that ChatGPT got 90% of their physics questions wrong. Smira, if I had a calculator that wasn't consistently 100% correct, I would throw it in the bin. Why does there seem to be this sort of acceptance that these tools might get something you ask wildly wrong? Honestly, Jonah, educators and regulators are apprehensive about the use of this tech because it's this alarmingly wrong. But for young people to use it, it's often just seen as a tool that can maybe bypass actually, you know, pulling an all-nighter and really studying all of those geometry and physics questions. The more pressing worry for long-term education trends is the risk of students not understanding concepts and principles itself. So it's not just not understanding that these this tech is, is inherent 
inherently wrong, but also not understanding the basics of physics and math. We might not have all liked exams and tests on math and geometry, but we cannot deny that a very basic understanding of it is actually necessary to comprehend how and why things work. And we might be at a risk of turning complacent. Instead, we could maybe use an AI tool for generating curated educational content for students such that it can maybe identify problem areas and give a more tailored work plan for the student itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, that was one of the other stories I read this week um, that Rishi Sunak uh, announced a £2 million investment in uh, an AI tool that creates lesson plans and quizzes and games for teachers. Yes, definitely. These tools could be used for aspects like that. If, say, there are underfunded education systems, not just in the UK, but anywhere else in the world, where teaching ratios are low and students might not get the one-on-one attention that they might need, it might be useful to introduce tools like this where you can, as I said before, identify those problem areas, especially for students who are, say, neurodivergent, who maybe might not care a lot for mathematics. If we can make it more creative, if we can make it more accessible and engaging with students to find out how that is possible is a huge part of it. So I I do think it might be a good step forward if, again, done meaningfully. So are schools banning these tools or are they sort of embracing them as a learning aid? I think schools could embrace them so long as they also have additional support on what this tech means and what IT and computer science means itself. For instance, my parents did not have a specific computer science class in their high school because their generation did not have these technological capabilities. But when I went to school, it rapidly progressed. We began learning about different computer programs and tools like Word and Excel. And eventually I did a little bit of Java as well. So This trend has now reached a point where even younger grades are being taught basic coding as part of their curriculum. In countries like Estonia, there are excellent resources for teaching computer science to students, and they are probably some of the most digitally literate young folks in the world right now. We can then imagine new courses on how chatbots work and how to best phrase prompts. But this has to be done in a way where students are informed of the risks and harms of using such chatbots, such as, and again at a very basic level, why these models don't actually understand their outputs, but are instead giving probabilistic ideas that fit their training mechanisms. Like how we were taught when we were children about physical dangers, like strangers, children can now be taught about digital dangers. Who could also be strangers. Oh gosh, yes. It's not just with kids and students. It's also something that it feels like we're also in like an experimental stage. As a researcher who is constantly on the lookout for new journals and publications, our little research bubbles are also confronting what AI means in academia. For instance, Jonah, many publications prohibit the use of generative AI and LLMs because it's largely seen that LLMs and generative AI are incapable of understanding nuance and the depths of lived experience-driven thought processes, which forms a bulk of a lot of the academic research material we say out there. Such technology can also contribute to growing swells of mis- and disinformation, which can obfuscate the truth and polarize communities, as you mentioned in earlier episodes. And LLMs cannot be named authors because they cannot be held liable or accountable for their actions, or in this case, their words, which can be essentially factually incorrect. Okay, and LLMs, we are talking about large language models, right? Oh, yes, yes. Um, And keeping with that flow, there are also journals which allow AI tools 
being used for grammar or syntax corrections, which can give the user ideas on how to improve phrasing or switch from passive voice to active voice. And I know I need things like that as well. And this is something that schools can use for children to write more eloquent essays on Shakespeare. But if students use AI without any safeguards or rules and regulations about them, their math papers might confidently suggest... Two plus two is three because the model has hallucinated. Ah, yes, that word again. We we covered that in uh, an earlier episode, I believe. Yes, but just to remind listeners again, hallucination is a term that's being used to describe when models output the wrong information but do so either in a convincing way or continue to provide factually incorrect information because the model does not actually understand what it is that it's putting out. So it's got nothing to do with foraging for the wrong mushrooms. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so do tools like ChatGPT democratise learning? I'm guessing in many cases the internet is easier to get hold of than some specific textbooks or other physical learning resources a student might need. Yes, it actually can be used. For example, if there are students who have migrated from different language curriculums, say a non-English language curriculum, to maybe an English language curriculum, they can use these tools to improve their language capabilities. They can help students access old test papers and revise their lesson plans, again, in that curated methodology that I mentioned earlier. The internet, for what it's worth, gave me a wealth of knowledge with just a few Google searches. But at the same time, I was also exposed as a child to platforms with extremely explicit content and no real understanding of what data protection, privacy or security even meant. I think I was far more concerned with getting the next chapter of a Wattpad fan fiction about One Direction at that point. What is Wattpad? That's a totally new word for me. OMG, golly, do you not know what Wattpad is? No. So it was... It was it was this platform where people could submit their stories essentially. So you could have a online repository of stories. You could have different chapters every week, alongside descriptions of the people, the cast that you think might play. I oh, think we're cool. going off off track right that now. That sounds but- awesome. Do you know, I, in my first year of university, I didn't even have the internet. Jora, I know. are you actually a lot older than I think you are? <laughs> yeah, uh, right, you can carry on. Okay, but coming back to the point, um, I think it's important to remember some things. Um, for one, children-centric design codes and simple language is very important for children to understand harms, understand why their data is precious, and understand the landscape of a very, very publicly accessible web. Children should also be stakeholders in this conversation. And this is a lot of the work that the Turing does with the Scottish National AI Alliance and the Scottish Children's Parliament to have children's rights in AI. And finally, a big part of that is protection of young people on the internet, um, where their data and they themselves can be harmed emotionally and physically if there are no safeguards in place. Some of the research that I can direct people to is the UNICEF's policy guidelines on AI for children, the ICO's age-appropriate design code, and the UK's proposed online safety bill, amongst many other works that are being put out there to protect the children that are interacting with, as I said, a very dangerous landscape of the World Wide Web. Yeah, when I think about my children growing up with the internet as it is, that does kind of terrify me. Uh So I will be checking out those resources and like all the other sources we reference in the episode, we will put them in the episode notes. 
Do you like Beatles, Mira? Yes, of course. I love me a little dung beetle, a ladybird. <laughs> A stag beetle. Yeah, stag beetles are very cool. But I, I was actually referring to a band uh, called The Beatles. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes. yes. (laughs) So the Beatles, they've always been a forward thinking band using technology to enhance their music. And this week they prove they still are. Diehard fans will already know about Now and Then, the new song released this week, which used AI to bring one of John Lennon's unreleased demos to life. Smira, I understand the AI software was developed by Peter Jackson's team when he made the documentary series Get Back in 2022. Very good if if you haven't seen it. Um, I haven't seen it, Jonah. What is it? It's good. It's um, footage from the 1970s of the Beatles recording their final album and Peter Jackson and his team kind of uh, made a tool that uses AI to isolate instruments um, from an original tape or something like that. Nice, I can imagine how that'd be lovely. It's good, it's cool. Uh, So yeah, about the AI, I'm presuming that it's kind of um, a frequency isolation, a bit like an advanced EQ. Is that the kind of technology they use for this new single now and then? Oh, that sounds interesting. Is that how it works? I presume so. From the sort of little I know, the um, EQing basically can separate frequencies. And when you have a tape recording, like John Lennon's demo of Now and Then was just him in his New York apartment playing the piano and singing. And uh, the singing was really quiet in the background and you couldn't separate it from the piano. So it was hard for them to, I think they actually tried in the nineties to work on this track, but then because of the developments in um, the technologies that Peter Jackson and his team made for the, for the get back series, um, they were able to separate his voice. So I, I presume, and this is not coming from the expert here, listeners, I'm the questioner, Smear is the expert, but from the little I know, it's a type of advanced EQing that the machine learning can separate the frequencies even more. So they were able to extract John's voice, take away the piano, and then work to make the song from the ground up. Apologies, listeners, we have a little audio dropout here. Smira got really excited by a ladybird on her window and turned her laptop round to show us, but uh, inadvertently unplugged her microphone. So I believe she said something along the lines of, Oh, Jonah, how fascinating. You're so clever. You should be the explainer or something similar. So we'll pick back up a little further down the line. There's a really good film on the Beatles website to accompany the release. um, And I found myself getting slightly wet in the eyes when they were talking about honouring John and George, the two members of the band that are no longer with us. Um, Using AI to bring someone's image or voice back to life isn't new, right, Smira? There have been films made with actors who passed away during production and other songs have been made using the voices of deceased musicians. Uh, Although we hear about these techniques being used a lot in the arts... Are the technologies being used by the average person for us? Yes, um, there are new chatbots that are being made available by companies so that the, again, the average person, you and I, can actually use this technology to generate a neural network that will help us communicate with people we have lost or people we are no longer in touch with. For example, there is Replica. This began when the founder of the of the chatbot lost a very dear friend of them and built a new built a chatbot that was based on the data of existing chats that they had and created a back and forth to kind of have this communication with this person and that idea was that this in, this kind of technology could be used by other people to communicate with the people that they've lost and very recently I've also lost a, a dear uncle of mine and 
it is hard to have someone le- to to lose someone like that but the idea is that you can use these chatbots to answer a few questions and then have a chatbot of someone you've lost that you can interact with on a daily basis yeah well i'm sorry to hear about your uncle it's it's incredible this um this link we can have it must be so powerful for people who um can do it when i was reading a bit about these kind of technologies i was surprised by how intense and vital these relationships can be for some people but i also read about some people uh, showing some pretty worrying behavior towards their chatbot like some nasty verbal abuse which could obviously be a precursor to something that they might be doing in in real life i presume a number of people that these technologies can help are possibly vulnerable adults and young people are there regulations in place to protect users you know particularly these users who are so vulnerable and emotional and desperate possibly yeah, I can imagine how you would want that to have that one final conversation with someone to, you know, maybe celebrate your wins with them and share some of the great feats that have happened in your life. And at least I have this conception of them if they were still here. But this conception of them is built on our understanding of this person. So we're never going to get the person as it was, but rather our version of it, which I don't know about you, but it makes me uncomfortable to know that that might be the case. And also you're going to lose out on the truly unique ideas and comments and life philosophies they've had, the jokes that they've made, which you cannot come up with. And a chatbot, certainly with the data available, may never be able to because it doesn't have the lived experience of that person. It's never going to make the jokes my uncle made. It's never going to make, it's never going to give me the kind of advice that he gave because again, he it's never had his life experiences. Yeah, yeah I, I feel like there's, um, I would personally, I could see it being really attractive for gaining closure but anything more prolonged i feel like for me would be possibly um emotional roller coaster that i wouldn't want to go down yeah exactly and another aspect of that is because this is a service being provided for a price you lose out on this service after eventually being very dependent on them you might lose access to them because you cannot afford to pay for these services anymore or the service itself might shut down and you might never be able to interact with them which might be an even more harmful cycle of repeating that loss again but now through a digital interface and in terms of regulations, again, because this is so much based on like the consent of ourselves to agree to use these apps, you know, we can always put the terms and conditions, but a concern that should be at the forefront of everyone's mind is the privacy implications and the data usage. We're sharing a lot of very sentimental emotions to us. We're sharing a lot of personal details about this person, which can be leaked at any time or it can be sold to another third party. This is not to say all companies are doing it, but it is something we should keep in mind when we are sharing these personal details Um towards chatbots like this yeah so i suppose um maybe if you're sort of savvy to it we can all take on a bit of responsibility that we can help loved ones if they were to turn to something like this make sure they understand the risks and and the truths about who they're communicating with um because i can see it being so attractive and it being so um emotionally triggering for people that's a it's a complex one isn't it yeah, it is. It really, really is. I I don't know. It always makes me remember the movie Her and, you know, I don't know oh, if yeah. I want to have that kind of a future where yeah. you know, my companion is not really there and the kind of impact it's going to have on on your physical, emotional and your mental well-being. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's one of those things that it's quite easy to um, to talk about how you feel until you kind of need a companion AI. And yeah. so 
Yeah, interesting. I imagine we'll come back to that one day. That's about all we have time for this week. Um, Samira, I like to end on a positive note. So do you have anything in the AI world to feel optimistic about? Yes, I read that there are some scientists and medical professionals who have recently released an AI tool that can grade the severity of cancers or tumors. They used a technique called radiomics to identify markers which are otherwise invisible to the naked eye. They used it to identify retroperitoneal sarcoma. I hope I prepared I hope I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> you did, but you didn't pronounce the bit afterwards saying, I hope I pronounced that correctly, correctly. <laughs> and this develops in the connective tissue in the abdomen. So the algorithm in question was trained with data from over 100 patients to create tumors from scans. And this was apparently more accurate than a biopsy, which is usually very invasive and painful. We can now use this to detect cancerous tumors early and provide better treatment plans. But I would say the caveat that this was trained on European and US patients. And of course, we need a lot more data on it, but it's a good sign of things to come. It's always excellent to hear about advances in medicine, be it AI assisted or not. Um, I wanted to add my own little, well, I don't know if it's a reason to feel optimistic or not, but it's definitely a reason to feel uh, relevant. Collins Dictionary (laughs) have announced their word of the year for the year. <laughs> it is AI. Oh. Everybody's talking about it. <laughs> yeah, AI, which uh, is an abbreviation for artificial intelligence, in case you didn't know, Smira. I do. And I would like Good to hopefully job. dedicate a segment of an upcoming episode to dissect what artificial intelligence actually means. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> So that's about it for this week. We read so you didn't have to, although you're obviously still very welcome to. Uh, we're not we're not the only people reading. And to be honest, I just read the headlines and I think Smira does a lot more reading. So, yes, thank you, Smira, for your brilliant brain. Thank you, Jonah. I love to provide these services anytime, anytime. <laughs> We learned that the UK's AI Safety Summit was a step in the right direction and that definitively there will be more summits to come. We learned that using ChatGPT to complete your homework doesn't necessarily mean cheating or indeed getting the answers correct. And we learned about the complexities of using a tool with money and data at one end and people's vulnerabilities and emotions at the other. Not always the best mix. So subscribe and imbibe, follow and wallow, share with someone you think might care and... uh... (laughs) Oh, also follow us on Instagram at TuringInst and email us at podcast at Turing.ac.uk. Thanks to Jesse for bridling some of my more questionable dad jokes. And until next week, goodbye. Bye from me.